Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome everybody to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my Bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, Bubba. Hey, Bubba. Hey, man. Good to hear you today. Get up with you to talk a few texts as we're uh, entering well in this new year and this new season. We're talking today on the second Sunday after the Epiphany in year B. These are the texts for January the 14th, 2024. Bubba, uh, I'm not preaching this day. I've got a guest speaker, I'm happy to say. One of our uh, qualified and sanctified and adopted adopted uh, Bubba Brothers, Bishop James Dixon. Uh, oh, my give a goodness. Shout out to Bishop Dixon. Uh, is coming to Venice, Florida, leading a uh, racial reconciliation. I, I will... I will be sure to tune in. <laughs> you need to tune on, in on YouTube, and because Bishop Dixon is a man with a plan, a and man I with love a to plan. hear Bishop Dixon preach. Is, he uh, is going to uh, lead a workshop for us on Saturday. It's MLK weekend, and then preach to the fine folks at Venice on Sunday. And so, Bishop, uh, maybe you're going to use these texts, and you'll get some ideas today. But. Uh, <laughs> Point being, I'm not going to be speaking on them, but I love these texts, and I love what's going on. And so uh, anxious and uh, in a good way, uh, anticipating what you got going on today, uh, Bubba, and let's hear what you're thinking as we get ready to preach. Well, uh, a week or two ago, you had a kind of, I guess it was last week, a throwaway line kind of saying, the season of Epiphany. So, well, I don't really know. Do we have a season of Epiphany? Well... Thinking about that, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about it, it matters. Because yeah. um, they're labeled technically the Sundays after the Epiphany. The epiphany. As a Pentecost, mm-hmm. what we sometimes refer to as Pentecost season, is really the Sundays after, after. Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Well, that matters because the Sundays after the Epiphany are basically all about what happens after we see the light of Christ after we hear the voice of God. The question is, what next? That's one reason it flows out like this, the Sundays after the Epiphany. I didn't know the answer when you said that. I was like, well, yeah. is there? And technically, I think we can safely Most say us, there's an Epiphany season. That's not yeah. a problem. Yeah. But, Most of us have lap, lapsed into that or just sort of assumed that, oh, well, we're in Epiphany. And we, uh, you know, yeah. preachers, we're thinking, well, I've got somewhere between five to seven weeks here, depending on when Easter falls. The, uh, the, language, I, yeah. the language about after does give us a homiletical mm-hmm. hint, is what I call it. Mm-hmm. What happens after the Epiphany? Yeah. Uh, after the Epiphany of the uh, Magi coming, et cetera, et cetera, after the epiphany of Jesus' baptism and the voice and all that. but And then our individual epiphanies, the ones in the scriptures, and our own. What happens after we have that high spiritual? So in Sam, First Samuel, we have the call of Samuel, and you have the alternative of stopping at 10 and leaving 11 through 20 as the parenthetical text off. Right. I would advise against that if you're going to, particularly if you want to focus on this for your proclamation. Um, because you you have here the light and the voice, but more importantly to me is Samuel's response and witness to what's going on. Yeah. So in all of this, though, you do have light and voice and a call and a response. Witness. Uh, in 1 Corinthians six twelve through 20, this is Paul talking to folks who may have been blinded by the light. Mm-hmm. They have seen the light, but maybe they didn't quite understand what they saw. And he's trying to rein in a little bit of their response and their witness and talk about how that flows. And then John, boy, you've mm. got lots of follow me, come and see, you will see. You have hearing, 
seeing, telling, all these things. That How do we respond to an encounter with the light of the world? How do we respond to the call that God gives us? So today is call and response. What happens after we have an epiphany? So. I think that'll work, man. I think that gives us a place to hang our hats and, yep. you know, put up our coats and, and uh, <laughs> put uh, uh, get Off to work. Yeah, let's do it. First Samuel 3, 1 through 10, I have to tell you, I have this story I, I, I tell usually when this text, if it's a different congregation, that uh, I've made a lot of money off this story. I had two times when I was the uh, had to preach to, with a view to a call, as mm. they say. Uh, I yeah. used this text. I got to pick my text. It wasn't a Sunday morning. And I used this text and told a story about being a little boy who uh, who listened to the obituaries Every son and thought the voice of God was the radio obituary voice. Yeah. And then I went to the barber shop to get my hair cut, and I heard the same voice coming from the barber chair, and I was so afraid I went and hid in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> How do we respond to the voice of God? Mm-hmm. So we got Samuel here. Uh, as I said, the parenthetical should be read because it shows partially what it means to witness. And the benefits of witness are not always the same as we think they are. So, verses 1 through 10 are the call story, and that's the primary listed text. Um, it beautifully told story. It plays with images of the word, you know, the word of the Lord was rare. Visions were not widespread. Eli's eyesight's dimming. You know, the light had, but the light had not gone out. All these beautiful imagery it uses to make its case here. And then there's this voice that calls. But Samuel did not yet know the Lord, so he couldn't understand what the voice was. He kept running to Eli. And finally, Eli, who couldn't see, and had not heard the voice, was able to have a dimly lit epiphany, if you will. He said, it's the Lord. The next time he calls, say, speak for your servant is listening, which is what he does. This this kind of reminded me of old Joe Sittler. Joe Sittler taught at the Lutheran Seminary in Chicago. He's one of the first... um, environmental ecology kind of persons with theology mm-hmm. among other things but he was had a book called gravity and grace which was really fascinating and one of the stories he talks about in there he's talking about every spring seniors come by to talk to him about their first call and and he said what i keep hearing is what they want I want this kind of church in this kind of community i need access to this that and the other and I keep thinking, it sounds more like they're saying, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking, speaking. Mm. rather than speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Yes. So I've, that stuck with me ever yeah. since I, I read one, it. <clears throat> one of my mentors in a similar fa- uh, fashion used to use the line, the answer is yes, Lord. Now, what's the question? <laughs> sort of representing that same yeah. openness, yeah. like, okay, yeah. well, this is God speaking, which Samuel, I mean, uh, Eli, yes, is dimming poor old Eli, you know, he ain't what he used to be, but he's got enough experience and heart to point Samuel in the right direction, and and we get that hint at the end, he says, this is God speaking, let him do what what, what God's going to do. And and homiletically, you may, you may play with... Uh, our own modern culture, our own modern church, you know, the issue of the Lord, word of the Lord being rare, visions, not people not paying attention, not listening. Uh, you know, you could play a little bit with the increase of the nuns and the lower attendance and, yeah. you know, and what do we do? All of that sort of stuff is, is sort of tied up in those first 10 verses. But here's the interesting thing to me. It had been hinted at in chapter 2 where it talks about Eli's sons. And and they are kind of despicable. They are using the office for their own benefit. They're embezzling. They're using the office and doing all kinds of na- stuff. And uh, this is the word. So your poor old Samuel's like, I'm listening. 
And he says, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to whoop the eye. I'm coming on. Everybody's going to listen. And 11 through like 15. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tear into his boys. I'm going to. This is not going to be good. And uh, I think there. Verse 15. Mm. How many of us have laid awake knowing we had to say something? about a difficult situation in the church. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision yeah. to Eli. That We've all been there. That resonates, you know, when you've got one of those on your heart and you're going, I don't have to say this. I don't want to walk in there and say this. And, yeah, he's tossing and turning. He says it's, he can't, Sleepless he can't night sleep. Key. And... Old Eli figures out you don't want to come on. Tell me what it tell is. Tell me what it is, boy. You've you've got to speak. Do not hide it from me. Don't hide from me what the Lord said. I think Eli probably had a hint. I think his eyes were dim and he was kind of losing it, but I think he was aware of what his boys were up to. And he knew what was coming. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, Well, what the Lord wants, nothing I can, you know, do about. But here's the real important thing, 19 and 20. The effect of Samuel speaking the hard word. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. Ooh-wee. You go from 20, go back and compare that to one the word of the lord was rare in those days what happened is the lord came and samuel said your servant is listening and then he spoke honestly even though it was a hard word yeah and people were able to say it's not what we wanted to hear but we know it is an honest word yeah um this is uh for us what happens after we have the epiphany the realization well <laughs> it <laughs> could be kind of rough yeah it could be difficult it could be we may hear a word we wished we hadn't heard i have a a book i was looking at the other day i'm sorting books and this is one i'm getting let go of it says the hard sayings of jesus the hard sayings as yeah. a pastor there are things sometimes you'd rather not have to say lord show us your will god if it here. i mean i've i've have prayed and because i heard it a lot especially growing up lord if it be thy will let's reveal your will to us and we will follow lord and i'm going most of the time we're not really no. too serious about that or we're not we're not thinking about what we're praying because and, then when, when God does reveal God's self, when God does reveal God's will, it is most often a, oh, I mean, even Jesus, you know, going, yeah, I know it's the last minute, but if there's any way you can let this cup pass right. for me, it's, it's tough, can be tough. What do we do? Uh, you know, yeah. We did the baptism mm-hmm. last week, and then we'll do the temptations as into, into, um, Lent, but that sequence of he comes up out of the water, the heavens split, the dove comes down, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He's just basking in the glory, and the very next word, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mm. Drove him um, out. Yep. So I think in proclaiming this, I mean, we've talked a lot about how this speaks to us as preachers. How do we, how does this speak to us as listeners, as Christians, and I think it does speak to us individually and as congregations that a word from the Lord is not all pleasant, and it calls us sometimes to some difficult task that we'd rather not do. And and it, uh, too often, I think we look for affirmation of who we are rather than a call and a challenge to to come up higher as it were and pull us in some directions and i think that's part of what sometimes congregations need to be able to hear is that the word of the lord is a loving word but it's not always a pleasant word 
And that might be, and it may be a time to talk about, as we come to this new year, what are some kind but not necessarily pleasant things we may need to be hearing from the Lord this year? Are there hard sayings that we need to listen? Yep. Yep. Psalm 139 is... um, a psalm for the unjustly accused. <laughs> it, the refrain that kept coming to my mind is, you know me, Al. You know me. I'm not like that. You know me. Um, this is uh, possibly composed for uh, a situation in which in the temple or in religious life where someone, for someone who may have been accused of behavior or thought or faith practice that um, they don't feel like they were guilty of and they're trying to say I throw my case on God you know you know me from the inside you know who I am Um, it splits out two ways in the text that we have one through six is about how God knows our inner life and 13 through 18 has this kind of foreknowledge, uh, almost predestination about mm-hmm. who we are. This is the part, verse 16, that ties to our gospel lesson where Jesus sees Nathaniel and knows him and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So that's where this comes from. But one of, the, one of the interesting things back to this text, particularly verse 16, is that this is where you get this kind of language in the Bible is where you get some folks thinking that there's, you know, uh, they wish they could get a computer printout of God's plan for their life. You know, they just say, God's got a plan. I wish I knew what it was. This is where you get some of this language. I know everything's for a purpose. I just don't know what it is. And I just want to say, to notice, foreknowledge does not mean that God has foreconlled what's going to happen in your life. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a rum- wonderful image of a man up on a up on a mountain looking down, and he could see trains coming from two different directions. He, the man on top of the mountain could see that the trains were going to collide. He had foreknowledge hmm. of this thing that was going to happen, but the man on the mountain did not make those things happen. He knew they were going to happen. Um, so I, I'm more along the lines of the foreknowledge of God, of God knowing how things, how we're going, what, what we're going to do, because God exists outside of time. All of time happens all at one time, as it were. Without it being, God has laid out a plan, and we got no, have no control about it. Yeah. That, uh, we have lots of responses and choices. This is the key. Yeah. That we did, see the did, light, and we can respond and act. Yeah. That ditch I'm about to step in. Yeah. God knows if I step in it, I'm going to, uh, it's going to hurt, but I'll, I'll learn to be more careful. Doesn't mean God dug the ditch and put it there and said, now, hey, y'all watch this. <laughs> what, <laughs> what? What, that's what's about to happen to him. What, yeah. what am I, one of my, uh, Dr. Henry, uh, church history at Duke, uh, was a Presbyterian and he liked to caricature some of the extreme predestinarians in the Presbyterian world by saying, did you hear about the pastor that fell down 15 steps the front of his church? He got up, dusted himself off, and said, boy, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> oh, man. That's where that kind of thinking will get to you. Yeah. But the main thing for this text, for this day, is has to do with God seeing us. Yeah. And Jesus saw Nathaniel. And again, we see things, but also the importance that God sees us. This is the theme I want to pick up is Mm -hmm. God sees us. We are seen. We are not invisible (laughs) to God for all. And when I was a kid, they, you know, Sunday school teachers are who they are, you know, mostly, you know, very nice, wonderful women who are trying to control a bunch of rambunctious boys. God's God's watching you. Yeah. You know, trying to make us behave. And you yeah. kind of put that fearful thing in, but this the Lord. being yeah. seen by God is not a fearful thing. Yeah. It's being and, known and loved. 
and not being the, anonymous. It comes back, you and we talk a lot here. There's a basic element of trust. There's a basic element of this kind of relationship of who God is and who we are. And that's why I love the ending of this psalm passage for today. You know, I try to figure all this out, God. I try to get your thoughts. They're, they're too high. They're too wonderful. But I come to the end, and I am still with you. There you go. There it is. That's that's the position of faith, trust. We are not invisible. We are seen. So one of the themes running through today is seeing God and being seen by God and the inner work, how those things interrelate, and hearing from God, speaking to and for God. Yeah. I used to so, wonder if God could see me under my bed, you know. I'd slide <laughs> when I was a kid. I'd slide under there and say, I wonder if God can see me God down there. can see there. me down here. <laughs> so one time, one time, uh, my two boys, uh, you know, I just loved listening to them when they didn't know I was listening. <laughs> and they were like, you know, seven, seven and four or something along that line. It was around Christmas time. And the younger one was wondering how, God, how Santa Claus could see everything we did and keep track of it. And the older one, who eventually did become a computer design engineer, had this whole elaborate thing he had thought up in which there were invisible video cameras all over the world with a feed to the North Pole, and there were... Uh, elves with monitors and computers who were entering everything in. So this is how Santa Claus kept track. And I thought about that, and I said, there are people who think that's how God works. And when we die, it will come out the naughty and nice list. And we wonder, how does God see all that we do? All right. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, coming down to one answer to that problem of what to do about God seeing everything we do. It's just say, well, God sees, but God don't care. God's Mm. indulgent. God doesn't care. Um, All things are lawful for me, but not all. In quotes. And Paul responds, but not all things are beneficial. All, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, Paul says. The presenting problem here in Corinth was that a spiritual elite had been pushing a version of evangelical freedom, freedom in Christ, that went beyond its real ethical limits. Uh, They had taken it to absurdity. it reminds me every time I read this and think about it. It reminds me of the one my favorite line from Luther's large catechism, where in the preface, where he's explaining why he created the large catechism, this teaching instrument. He said, "I was sent by the council to examine the churches in rural Saxony. Alas, what wretchedness I beheld! <laughs> we have perfected the fine art." of abusing liberty. Mm. The, that line, the fine art of abusing liberty, wow. uh, resonates with this text. Yeah. Um, this is what Paul is confronting. Uh, now, in verse 13, when he talks about food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, they're not talking about food. Because you see, he immediately uh, jumps into forn- you know, fornication in this. They're saying... You know, the body is the body. The body wants what the body wants. It's just, it's just, it's just food you eat. If you want sex, just, it has nothing to do with spirituality. That's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And Paul confronts it on a a couple of, um, confronts their slogans with, um, Several connections, and all of them have to do with interconnectedness. You cannot separate our body from our spirit. You cannot separate what we do from how it affects the person we do it with. Uh, This language about we come one and all that can seem a little bit, you know, well, that's just the Bible. That doesn't apply. But... We know there's no such thing as casual sex. Yeah. Uh, those whom we get into relationship with, it affects us emotionally, which I think 
connects with spiritually, there is no separating those things. And it affects who we are and how we are. And this is what Paul is saying. You can't do this and think it doesn't have an effect. So one has to think through whom one does this with because it has a larger implication. Then you also cannot, as a Christian, separate what you do from this body that you're a part of. And then he makes this kind of connection of we are our body, we are united with Christ, and we're united with one another because we're united together in Christ, mm-hmm. so what one does affects the others. Now, this is not a conformity issue. This is an awareness that we do not act alone in life. Um, we, from a, a deep sense of connectivity that, you know, that he ends with, basically saying we're we're a temple of the holy spirit yeah. and you can't separate body and spirit you can't separate yourself from the overall body the mm-hmm. christian church body is a temple for the holy spirit the individual human body is a temple for the holy spirit it's all connected and you can't separate those things it's basically right. you can't separate what you do physically from the spiritual life mm-hmm. In any manner, shape, or form. And one can take that to either extreme in that, as as you've alluded, what was going on in Corinth was likely, we're so spiritual, it doesn't matter what we do, you know. And and, and the other side of it is, as, you know, uh, echoes of my childhood and a sort of puritanical kind of, you know, now look, y'all, you boys especially, (laughs) you got to separate out here. Yeah. All right, what you do, and don't do these things over here, because you got to stay holy, you know. And and you, <laughs> you yeah, that's not going to work, right? That's not going to work. We we live in flesh, and we live yeah. in this world. And it was many, many, many years later when I was introduced to Mircea Eliada, the sacred and the yeah. profane, and and yeah. learning that. Yes, there's that which is sacred. There's the experience of God, the numinous. There's uh, that which is profane, not so much in terms of what I learned as profanity, but just the everydayness, right? The things, the sensuality. Uh, And it's not that never the twain shall meet. One is experienced in the other. There's such a vital connection. And so you can make this passage a case in missing the point. Yes. by taking it too far in the other direction. Well, so. one, one of the things that I think Paul is really trying to push is you cannot disconnect what you do from its effect on others and your community and your own spirit. And there you go. And, and you know, I'm, I'm doing some Luther pills here, but I can't help it because they just <laughs> roil up. Uh, in, in his book, On the Freedom of the Christian, sometimes called On Christian Liberty, there's this famous quote of Luther's in which he says, A Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, can do anything mm-hmm. they want to, and nobody can tell them not to. But at one and the same time, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. Mm. Within that responsible freedom that we have as Christians, we are responsible then to freely love one another and think about how our actions have an impact upon them. Absolutely. And the last thing I want to say about that is freedom is in Christ. Freedom in Christ is in Christ. You are in Christ. It's not freedom handed you by Christ. Mm. So the freedom exists within the relationship with Christ. So if you're free in Christ, why would you do things you know Christ wouldn't like? Yep. Yep. Moving right along, John 1, 43 through 51. I just love... <laughs> I love this kind of... I'm talking about <laughs> predestination. I love the way this starts. The next day... Jesus decided to go to Bethsaida. He just woke up and said, wonder what I'm going to do today. I think I'll just, uh, hey, look, over there, Galilee, Bethsaida, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's go that way. He found Philip. What, did he stumble across him? Was he looking for him? (laughs) Had he heard of him? Uh, You know, just, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of foundness. He found Philip. 
Philip found Nathaniel and said, we have found him. <laughs> and Moses, so that's one theme you could play with today. What is it? Who finds whom? Yeah. You know, remember I found it campaign that uh, some traditions had, an uh, evangelistic campaign. And what they're talking about, I found it. I found it. Well, who found whom? Yeah. Is that akin to the uh, 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 lapel button I was convinced to wear as about a sophomore in high school? I was full on in my evangelistic fervor and pinned on one day, walking through the lunchroom, my pen said, Jesus is the answer. Man, I was just so proud to put that. And a wisecracking senior stopped me and said, Fairless? What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I, oh, I don't know. Another one of those campaigns, I don't know. It was one of those, I found it, and it was supposed to be a conversation starter. What did you find? And then you talk about Jesus. Uh. So today, you got all kinds of people finding things, yeah. Jesus finding people. Um, one, of the, one of the things that Craddock had to say, and I love what Fred Craddock said about this. He said, those who have beheld the glory cannot prove it. But they can witness to what they have seen. That, he said, was the the theme of the Sundays after Epiphany. Say that that again, because we've got some folks trying to write that down. Those who have beheld the glory cannot prove it but they can witness to what they have seen and heard and that's what we're called to do is we're called to witness and this is basically a text about people finding not looking this is funny they're not looking for anything but they find it they stumble almost stumble across it in john stumble upon yeah you know he found philip he said, follow me. Of course, that's the theme. And, you know, where they were. And city of Andrew and Peter. Well, just before this, this is when you need to read earlier in the text, is when John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, and who turned and went following after him? There goes Andrew and Peter, you know. And so this is a, this whole first part of John's Gospel, yeah. you have the pro- prologue in which they announce this is the light of the world has come and dwelt among us and all this. The rest of it is people pointing to it, people following it, people witnessing to what they've seen. And so you have Philip, having encountered Jesus, turns around and he finds Nathaniel and says, we have found the one who is promised by Moses and the mm-hmm. prophets. Uh, Moses, at Moses, it's there will arise a prophet, you know, larger than Moses in Deuteronomy, and of course the various prophets and the messianic hopes. And I love Nathaniel's answer because being from, well, I say <laughs> I'm from Mount Airy, North Carolina, but I was born in Stewart, Virginia, which yeah. once upon a time did have a stoplight, but they couldn't <laughs> figure out how to make it work, so they just put a gunny sack <laughs> over it till the state came and got it. Uh, the population of the town was less than a thousand, and the county yeah. was about eight or nine thousand total. So yeah. I know what it means for somebody to say, "Can anything good come out of Patrick County, Virginia?" Yeah, that's right. Can anything good come out of Slate Mountain? Hmm. Uh, Jesus, as far as Nathaniel could see, he had no credentials. He had no education. He had no family connections. And he was from Galilee, for crying out loud. Country Hicks. In the middle Hicks. of nowhere, country Hick of a little village of Nazareth. Can What? Now, Philip did not argue, did not ridicule his doubt, did not manipulate him. If you died tonight, <laughs> are you sure where you would live, spend eternity? And he offered no proof. He said, come and see. I think that's a very instructive for the church. 
And it's important, uh, fl- flipping back to what we were talking about in Corinthians, and not not about sex. And you know, I'm not worried about mm. that. That's not what I'm talking about. The notion that our evangelical freedom means living in a way that we show the love of Christ in community. Right. When we invite people to come and see, realize they're going to pay more attention to what they see than what we say for a good while. They're going to wonder who we are and how we get along, how we treat one another in the church before they're going to care anything about what we say about God in Christ. So when you invite them to come and see, you invite them to come meet Christ. And now to meet Christ is to meet Christ in the community of the church. And we need to pay attention to what we communicate by what people see amongst us when they come. Yeah. I was exposed by a um, fellow that's a professor currently at Oklahoma State University. I knew him when he came to the University of Florida as a freshman and was part of our uh, our college ministry there. And we uh, had engaged in lots of excellent uh, theological conversations over the years. And we've kept in touch. And not long ago, um, introduced, encouraged me to read the book, Centered Set Church. Centered Set is a mathematical uh, concept that uh, Mark Baker is the author. Uh, wouldn't be a bad idea if y'all want to take a look at it. The, you know, Delmer, you and I, back in the day, have browsed many a bookstore and have always said, if you pick up a book, you buy it, you take it home, and you get one good idea out of it, it was worth it. Right. Yep. So <clears throat> this fellow has experience on the mission field and tells lots of stories that I wasn't exactly with, but the basic idea really resonated with me. And it was understanding community in the church less by the lines we draw, come in and uh, do this thing and, uh, you know, uh, accept these beliefs and go one, two, three, and then you're part of us. But much more what we see in the gospel here. Come and follow. Come and see. Follow me. Come and see. And the idea that the objects of a centered set are aligned toward a center, but they may be in all sorts of places and in all sorts of orientations and in all. Uh, and so it is uh, less about the boundary and more about, well, look over here. Okay. And and I have taken it as helping to kind of point people towards Christ, not in the way I learned. Uh, you yeah. started down the ropes of the, uh, I don't know, the four spiritual laws or the sinner's <laughs> prayer or whatever. There are lots of ways that I was taught yes. to lead people to Christ. Christ. I like what's going on here uh, yeah. between Philip and Nathaniel. Hey, just come and see. Take a look. Just look. Well, and, you know, then what happens after that? And, you know... It's, it's, good it's in stuff. Jesus' hands. That's right. That's right. Well, see, this is what happens in the text. It ha- so he says, come and see. So Nathaniel comes. Notice, we don't see Philip anymore. Yeah. And what happens is Jesus sees him. Now, however you want to play with this, and I know what one of the things John was interested in was signs and wonders mm-hmm. and scriptural production, predictions that show that prove, quote-unquote, that Jesus was the Christ. But what I'm interested in here is this notion of being seen by God. Being Jesus sees him. And Nathaniel's kind of astounded by this. And he, he's got, you are the son of God. And Jesus like, you, just because I saw you under the tree? You're going to see a whole lot more than this. So this is all that signs of wonder. Well, what's real important here is something that's hard for us to see in English. Because in that last line, it shifts from the personal to the plural, from the singular to the plural. And it shifts from being a story about Jesus encountering Nathaniel and becomes a proclamation to the church. Mm-hmm. Because it really says, very truly, I tell y'all, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Or, very truly, I tell all of you, Mm -hmm. all of you will see 
Yeah. Heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This becomes a proclamation from the event of this story into saying to the church, you, if you, you, once you encounter, you will see more and more things. Mm-hmm. Y'all will encounter God in so many ways. Now, question is what? Have we encountered? Because people are sitting. I'm, I would be at a certain point in my life. I was sitting there saying, "Well, I ain't seen nothing." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now uh, I, I hate to throw C.S. Lewis into this, but again, but Lewis was uh, talked about all through his life. He thought he was acting independently and alone. And then he looked back and saw God's <laughs> hand all the way through. And I was thinking about that with Psalm and 139. It could be that God sees ahead and we see God behind. Oh, it's just kind of how we are. We look back and we begin to recognize where God has been active. We will have seen. You might almost need to say that you will you will you all will have seen will recognize that you have seen angels sending and descending things happening where god was involved in your life and then you are called to talk forward about it yeah i think proclamation to the church is to say uh how do we how do we share Mm -hmm. with the world our encounters with the divine without telling people they ought to have the same thing too or they're not good yeah how do we, how do we make it a, a a description of our encounters right. without making it into a prescription for how they should behave that's exactly it that's kind of what i was getting at or how that that centered set thinking made me realize we we too often make it uh about oh well here's how i've understood it so that must be how you need to understand it too and how you need uh to follow you and i both read an article this week i shall not quote it nor name it i did not agree with a lot of stuff (laughs) that was in it but i did take the point at the end uh, thinking about the purpose of a sermon at least one (laughs) of the purposes, and one I affirm is, we want to tell good news. The preacher wants to tell good news. And seeing this, uh, as you said, the final words from Jesus in that passage, the good news, the message from Jesus is, even when it's with and to one person, is always immediately expanding. It is it is good news that is always immediately expanding into the world. And we've seen throughout all of these passages today, it's not just about us. It's just not. And in our individual encounters, whatever they may be, in our worship, in our prayer, in our devotion, in our service, it God is for us, but God is not only for us. God is always I, at work. Yeah. And another piece of this is I've seen this statistic over and over and over, and I've seen it recently on some Facebook uh, postings from some folks when uh, you ask people why they came to church, why they got involved. Uh, you know, somewhere in the 5% or less, uh, the advertising, uh, the sign, the pastor, and it's always 85% or above a friend or neighbor invited me to come sit come and sit and i was just out here in, i'm in the episcopal church mm-hmm. doing my thing i borrowing their youth room and on the bulletin board outside as i was coming in i noticed posted they're having the vestry election electing the new members of the vestry and they got all these bio sheets with pictures and part of it is how did you come to good shepherd because you know this is a church full of mostly retirees from somewhere else and over and over again you read the story you read these stories and you say how'd they become a part of the church well we moved to sarasota florida and my neighbor invited us to go and we had never gone to church as a kid but i decided you know those kind of stories and then how'd they get the good shepherd and over and over again they name members of this congregation 
that they met who asked them to come. And it's fascinating to me how many of them had not been Episcopalians when they got here. Everything, disciples of Christ, Baptist, Methodist, various things. Uh, Not that it's sheep stealing, it's just somebody invited me and I came and I liked the community. I liked what they had to say about Jesus. And then they start talking almost inevitably about ministries to the community, Mm -hmm. to the larger community that they were able to get involved in through being a part of this church. Now, this is this is a little bit, Father Bill, a little Trump uh, uh, tooting the horn of the, this local congregation. But I think it's instructional to us that what this Absolutely. says is, this is saying, to, as we talk to our congregations, we say, how do we witness? Well, you don't have to prove God, the existence of God or anything <laughs> yeah. else. You just come and see. Come and see. Do you have? You don't have to say. Do you have a church home yet? Just you know, invite people to come and see. Come and, and see. Not everybody will come. Not everybody will stay. Some of them will be like uh, Nathaniel, pretty negatively predisposed. Yeah. Church. Can I don't any, want anything to do with church. Can anything good come out of Hayesville? Yeah. Episcopalians ain't they a lot? You know what? What? They play a little basketball there in Hayesville. Yeah. Anything good? Yeah. Anything yeah. Good no, out I, I think it's, it's, it's deeply instructive. And so uh, preachers yeah. and pastors and teachers, as you're working this weekend, dig in this stuff. There is good stuff here. And uh, our, uh, certainly our thoughts and prayers and very best wishes for you, however you proclaim. Oh, that that message will come clearly to you, and hopefully you're not exactly in Samuel's place. You're not too uncomfortable with what God gives you to say, but whatever God gives you, go ahead and say it, right? Because it'll it'll be okay. Hey, listen, last time we talked about not being able to pull off a full-blown lectionary lab workshop uh, digitally uh, online, but we've heard from several folks this week that would like the opportunity just to maybe talk for a few minutes about what's coming up in the season of Lent and with those preaching. And so we'd like to do that. I will put these details out so that you all can see them. But on uh, Thursday, January the 25th, Delmer and I are going to kind of open the doors via Zoom uh, to kind of a living room conversation or y'all come on in and we'll talk a while and not a formal presentation, not a workshop, but we're going to be available, maybe have a couple ideas to throw out, but to talk about the upcoming season of Lent, about preaching, about what might happen. We'll take questions uh, best we can, either from us or those in attendance. Uh, Let's share some some wisdom with one another, and let's talk about our experiences. So we're going to do that 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time on Thursday, January the 25th. I will put out a link that you are welcome to use, and just come join the conversation. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. So looking forward to it, Bubba. And looking forward to being back next week. Uh, We'll have more good things to discuss, but I don't reckon there's much else left for us to do today other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary Lab Live is a Two Bubbas and a Bible production. Our opening theme is Top of the Morning, performed by Track Tribe. We'll go out today with a traditional gospel song, Farther Along. We'll understand it all by and by. This is a performance by Brad Paisley and a few of the fellers he got together there in Nashville, Tennessee. While there are others living about us, never
has come and taken our loved ones. It leaves our home so lonely and Shine.